not always, but often the worst thing that can happen to you is that you receive your heart's desire. Not always, but often the worst thing that can happen to you is when you receive your heart's desire. Grace was a Christian lady. She was single. She was in her 30s. She desperately wanted children, but time was running out. Along came Pete. She got married, and after five or six years um, of trying and, and failed attempts, and even sadly having miscarriages, she became pregnant. When her son was born, he was beautiful. It was her heart's desire. It was all she'd ever wanted. She doted on him. She gave him the best of everything. He was their only son. And she was really protective of him. She hardly let him do anything because she didn't want him getting hurt. He was smothered. He went, he went, when he went to school, he, he, homework and education always came first. They came before youth group, they came before kids clubs, they came before anything. And although he really enjoyed physical work, he wasn't particularly academic. But they pushed him to do his A-levels and then they pushed him onto university to train to be a lawyer. He was their only son and they wanted the very best for him. Pressure was too much for him. In his first term at university, he had a breakdown, and he, he, now, he left university, he now works on a building site, he's left home, and he hardly ever goes to see his mum and dad. Now that story's a made-up story, but it's typical of lots of stories, isn't it? Sometimes when we get our heart's desire, it ruins us and we can't enjoy it. Kids is an easy example because we all love our kids to bits. But we can make little idols of our kids, can't we? We can, we can ruin our enjoyment that we should have in our kids by loving them too much. Now, this might seem obvious, but you and me were, were made for God. God's, God's created this world to be pleasant and enjoyable and lovely. He's, he's given us children and, and he's given us... Um, pleasures and he's given us taste and he's given us all, all those things but God's put a ceiling on all earthly enjoyments all earthly enjoyments have a limit where you can't enjoy them anymore children are a gift but we were never we, we weren't created to find our ultimate fulfillment and joy and contentment in, in our children and when we try and do that we ruin them and we ruin us it's the same with sex and relationships and money and careers and health. All gifts from God, but they've all got a ceiling. We're never meant to find our ultimate joy in those things. Idolatry is when we take anything, even if it's a good thing, when we take anything and we put it first in our lives. When we make good things ultimate things. And when we do that, we, we, we end up not being able to enjoy the thing that we're trying to enjoy because we put too much burden on it. In fact, you could say that unless we have our heart's desires in the right order, our heart's desires will break our hearts. So where does that leave us with Abraham? Abraham's left everything to follow God's promise. He's given up family, he's given up money, he's given up possessions because he trusts that, that what the Lord's got for him is better than what he can build for himself. God's promise to Abraham, this, this promise of, of blessing and multiplying and making a great nation, it's all dependent on him having a son. And after 25 years of waiting, 25 years of, of frustration, the son arrives. Isaac means laughter. He would have brought so much joy to Abraham. You can imagine it, can't you? Abraham's an old man. He's got so much love stored up to give. And now he's got what his heart had always desired. A son. It's a good natural desire. It's a good thing. It's a gift that God had granted him. But what will he do with that son? Can you imagine the, the love that Abraham would have had for Isaac? I, I imagine him being best mates and they're playing in the garden together. And he puts him to bed and carries him on his shoulders and reads him stories and all that kind of stuff. Doting on him in his old age. 
It's an awesome feeling when you have kids, isn't it? You, 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 the dreams and your hopes that you have for them, how, how are they going to turn out? But the danger is that when God gives us good things, we tend to treasure the gift above the giver. And so we read in Genesis 22 verse 1, God tested Abraham. This is what, what's happening. The Lord's saying, Abraham, do you love me for what I give you or for who I am? Abraham, do you, do you trust me with every sinew when your body tells you not to? Abraham, will you trust me if it's going to cost you? Because if you do, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Abraham, do you believe that if you put me first, I'll provide for you everything you need? And so God tests Abraham. We don't, God doesn't test Abraham to, to, know if, to know whether Abraham loves him, because the Lord already knows. The, the test's for Abraham's benefit, not for God's benefit. The test for Abraham's benefit, to, to teach Abraham to, that he must prioritize God, because that's what's best for him. And it seems like a cruel test, doesn't it? But it's not a cruel test. One writer puts it like this. Sometimes God seems to be killing us when he's actually saving us. He was turning Abraham into a great man. But on the outside, it looked like God was being cruel. This is the making of Abraham. If Abraham can, can have this son and still treasure the Lord first, it will be the making of him. And this is the lesson of Genesis 22. That if we, if we trust God, if we put God first... He'll always provide for us. We get to enjoy the other things. So I want to break it up in, in three different ways tonight. Firstly, they get shorter as they go on, but the first thing is the test. As we've already said, this is for Abraham's benefit. This is what the Lord wants to know. Abraham, will you trust me when it seems impossible? Abraham, will I really come first in your life? When it, when it, when, when it really comes down to it, will I come first? Verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. It's important, there are, there are three occasions in this story when Abraham answers, here I am. On each occasion, it's his willingness to, to trust God and do whatever God wants him to do. Here I am, Lord. But it's a brutal request, isn't it? And it, this is recognized, this, it's a true story, but it's recognized as one of the, the greatest pieces of literature ever written. It, it gets dragged out for, for dramatic effect. Take your son, your only son, the son who you love, and go up to the mountains and, and kill him. In Leviticus chapter 12, the, the law of the firstborn sons explained. The firstborn son was, was always to be dedicated, to be consecrated to the Lord. In the same way that our, our, first, our first income, our, our tithe is to be dedicated to the Lord. Well, well, so were children. But instead of a human sacrifice, the Lord allowed them to bring an animal sacrifice. So you know when Mary and Joseph, when Jesus is little, they go to the temple to make the sacrifice. That's what they're doing. They're, they're making the sacrifice in the place of the firstborn. But here the Lord's saying, no, I want the son. I'm calling the debt in. And I'm doing it as a test. And we think, what on earth's going on? But the Lord's testing Abraham. Abraham, when it comes to the crunch, do I come first? Not only does Abraham love Isaac dearly, but Abraham knows that all of God's plans to bless the world through him all hinge on Isaac being alive. So this goes against Abraham's emotion. It goes against his intellect. It's, it's brutal. And it's not just that he heard a voice in his head, and you know, I think we, oh, we can all hear voices in our head. We know it's the voice of the Lord. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Can you imagine how he must have felt that morning? He absolutely trusts the Lord, but is this too much to ask? Lord, I could do anything for you, but, but not that. 
I can't imagine how heavy his heart must have been. I wouldn't have wanted to get up that day. And we're told Abraham's up early because he's keen to obey. Can you imagine the three-day walk to the mountain range in Moriah? And on the third day, he sees the mountain. He says to his servants, right, you stay here. Me and the lad will go now. We will return. Now, here's a question. Was Abraham lying when he said we will return? Were Abraham trying to soften the blow of what he was going to do? Was he trying to make them feel better? See, this was part of the test. Abraham, Abraham knew that God had promised to bless the world, that the only way God could bless the world was through his son Isaac. But he also knew Isaac were going to die. So Abraham's logic was, Lord, I know your promises can't fail, and I know they depend on Isaac, so if it comes to it, I know you can raise him from the dead. What's Abraham doing? He's putting the Lord first, even though he doesn't understand He's putting the Lord first because he knows that God keeps his promises. It's genuine faith, isn't it? Genuine faith, this Lord, I can't possibly see how, but I know your promise stands and I will obey you. It's raw faith, isn't it? Sometimes we have to practice the obedience of raw faith. Lord, I don't understand. Lord, it is painful. Lord, I'm confused. But I know you're good and I know you're true and I'll trust you. And I think Hebrews 11 helps us, because in Hebrews 11 it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he received the promises offered up his... He received... Sorry. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And this is the thing. Concluding, Abraham concluded, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. See, Abraham trusted God. He knew that for all of God's promises to come about, it depended on Isaac. He knew that he was going to have to kill Isaac, but he he believed God would bring him back. You can sense the agony in verse 7, can't you? The action slows right down. And Isaac asks the obvious question, Dad, where's the sacrifice? We've got the wood, we've got the stuff to make the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham responds to him. He says, God will provide. I imagine Abraham had to turn away when he said that just to to mask the tears. The Lord will provide, son. Verse 9, then they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built an altar there and he placed the wood in order and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. The the tension's unbearable, isn't it? It's like one of them films where, where the bomb gets to the last five seconds and they're still trying to defuse it. And then at the last second, the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Don't lay your hand on the lad. Don't do anything to him. Because now I know that you fear God. Because you haven't withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looks up and miraculously, there's a a ram in a bush next to him. And so Abraham goes, takes the ram, offers it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And we're told in verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. See, Abraham was prepared to go through with it, wasn't he? And at the final moment, at the final second, at the final split second, the Lord says, Stop! And Isaac's spared, and God has provided a substitute for him. We'll pick up the ram in a, in a little bit, but, but listen, this is what faith realizes. When I put God first, he will always provide for me. When I put God first, he will always provide for me. Now, this passage is one of the, it's one of the greatest pointers to us of God sacrificing Jesus as a, as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us. But I don't think that's the main lesson of this passage. The main lesson of this passage is that God provides for those who trust in him. Now, his provisions in Jesus, but it, God, the point is God provides for those that trust him. 
God provides for those who put him first. And Abraham does trust God. He, he couldn't see how, but he knew that God could work things together for good, and, and he does. And look what Abraham, look at the Lord's response to Abraham. Verse 15, by myself I've sworn. You can't swear by anything greater, can you? By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you've done this thing, because you haven't withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply you. As the stars of the heaven, as the sandwich on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the point at which Abraham's faith is proven genuine. And the result is there's going to be blessing beyond measure. Abraham puts God first, and now he gets to enjoy Isaac because Isaac isn't an idol anymore. He gets to look forward to a legacy greater than he, he could ever imagine. Now that doesn't mean that if we obey God and put him first, we get everything we want. But it does mean that if we obey God and put him first, he'll provide everything we need. See, at the beginning of his walk with God, God calls Abraham and Abraham obeys. And now here in the defining chapter of his life, God calls Abraham and he obeys. Now we know Abraham's had his ups and downs. He's a bit like us, isn't he? But he's better than us, but he's a bit like us. He's had his ups and downs, but his, his faith's genuine. He really does love the Lord. He, the Lord really does come, come first. Uh, and that faith's tested when it's tough. It's tested and it's genuine. And three times in this chapter, the Lord calls to Abraham. And each time, the, Abraham responds, here I am. Because that's what faith says. Faith says, here I am. Think of some of the, the, the great examples of faith in the, in the Bible. Moses is there at the burning bush and he's terrified. He's got to go to, to Pharaoh and, and he says, here I am. Samuel, the, the Lord calls him, is a little lad and he's got to do these, these things and serve God and, and, and the Lord calls him and he says, here I am. Isaiah sees the, the vision of the glory of God in the, in the temple and he's terrified. And the Lord tells him of the judgment that, that he's going to bring about and, and, and the Lord says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am. Ananias, when, the, when, when Paul's converted and everyone thinks it, it might be a trick and, uh, and that Paul might be, have a secret agenda to, to kill the church, uh, and the Lord speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to take him in. And Ananias says, here I am. Because faith says, my heart's breaking, I feel confused, but here I am. Abraham doesn't understand, he can't see how, but he knows God will provide, and it's that knowledge, we will return. That's what keeps him going, it's that raw faith in God's word. You see, men and women of faith aren't men and women who, who we triumphantly breeze through life. We're people with all our doubts, with all our weaknesses, with all our fears, and with shaky legs. We say to the Lord, here I am. So that's the test. This is the lesson. The lesson is God's sovereign. God's in complete control over everything. But often, the way he provides comes about as we trust. And it always comes about, his provision always comes at the right time. I think the big point of this passage is that God provides for those who trust him. God provides for those who put him first. That's what Abraham tells Isaac in verse 8, isn't it? And then in verse 14, Abraham calls the mountain Yahweh Yaira. It means the Lord will provide. And there's a saying that comes from it, that in the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. It becomes a famous saying. And what's important to understand here, providing isn't just something that God does, it's something that God is. He's named here, Yahweh Yaira. That's it's part of his name. And I want you to think for a few minutes, what does it mean that, for God to provide for us? What's the lesson that God provides for us? Our word provide is made up of two parts. Pro and vide. Now pro means before, doesn't it? 
So you have procreation, you have proceed, something that happens before. If, you, if you've got a boxing match or something, you promote it before it happens. Pro means before. And vide, does anyone know what vide means? See, it's where we get our word video from. It's where we get our word vision from. So provide means to see something before it happens. But, but more than that, it means to see to something before it happens. To sort something out before it happens. To make provision for something before it happens. I'll give you an example. We go out for a meal to Asiana. And I, I had one last night. It was gorgeous. I want very self-controlled, Chris. Sorry. We go out for a meal to Asiana. And you know it's going to be expensive. But you want to treat the people that you're with. And so before the meal, you go and give your credit card to Taz, the owner. And you say, cover the bill with that, will you? You've seen to it beforehand. You've provided. When, when my mum got married, she'd been paying board to her mum for four or five years. And when they got married, they didn't have money for a honeymoon or, or anything like that. But at my mum's wedding, a mum gave her all of her board money back. She'd been saving it to give it for a honeymoon in Spain. She didn't give it to her five years before she got married. She waited till the right time. She didn't let on that it would come in. My mum didn't know how they were going to pay for her honeymoon or what they were going to do. But my grandma had seen to it. She'd seen to it beforehand. She'd provided. If Leah's listening, Leah, I've already spent your board. But my granny were different. And that's what it means for, for God to be our provider. God sees to it before we get there. But he doesn't often reveal it until the right moment or the last moment one preacher puts it like this it's really clever God stood at the beginning of history and saw everything as though it were present and he saw to everything he saw there wasn't a thing that God saw that he didn't see to so we don't need to worry about what we can see because God's already seen it and seen to it now, this was a challenge for Abraham. Did he really believe that? Would Abraham put God first? Would, would Abraham trust God to provide for him? Did Abraham trust that God had already seen to it when he couldn't see it? When we, when we go through life, do we, do we understand? This is, this is a hard thing. It's a hard thing for me to say. Do we understand God has seen my life mapped out? He knows when I'm going to die. He knows the day. He knows the hour. And everything I need is already seen to it. But it's not been revealed yet. Don't give me it all at once. But God's seen my life and God's seen your life. And he's seen everything that's going to happen. And everything that has happened. And he's already seen to it. Doesn't that give you confidence? The grace and the provision, it's already there. So it challenged me, do I trust that the Lord's already seen to it so that I can trust him? There's a couple of things that stand out as we, as we think about this. And both of these things work in everyday life. And both these things are really relevant to us. So I, I want to just go through them. They're not my observations, but I've, I've doctored them a little bit. The first thing is this. This is how God's provision works. God often waits until the last minute to provide for us or to, to give us the provision. And it's not to tease, it's to teach. It's to teach us to trust him completely. Imagine if Abraham had found the ram at the bottom of the mountain. He might have thought it were coincidence. He wouldn't have appreciated the deliverance half as much, would he? But the Lord waits till the last moment so that Abraham's got no other options. Abraham knew this must be the Lord providing for me. And that's often how he works with us, isn't it? He waits until the last moment, he waits till we get to the end of ourselves, waits till we've got no more options, and he provides. Now, the, the grace, the provision's always been there. He'd provided for us before eternity. He'd seen to it, but he reveals it at the right time. And often what the Lord does is he, he, he provides for us at the moment we're most desperate. That gives us confidence as well, doesn't it? 
At the moment when we've run out of options, he loves to provide for his people. God loves, if you read through the Bible, he loves to provide for his people when they're out of strength and out of options. I have to remember, even though I don't see it, God's seen to it. Maybe you're struggling at the minute. You can't see where help's going to come from. You can't see where there's going to be a resolution. God's seen it, and he's seen to it. And one day we'll see it. Second thing, so if, if God often waits till the last minute, God often provides for us as we act in faith. Now that doesn't mean that God's dependent on us. It doesn't mean that God can't provide for us if, we're not, if we fail. God doesn't need us at all. But often how he works is as we act in faith, he provides. I remember loads of times when I was a kid, um, my dad went to Bible college and we had very little money. And my mum and dad were faithful, they were, they, were, they were generous, they gave to Christian causes, they tithed. And I remember so many times, at the right time, an envelope would come through the door and it'd have the exact money for a bill or something like that. In Malachi, God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Put me to the test. See if I won't open the floodgates of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there's no more need. Now, be, be honest, as we think about that, do some of us not tithe and not give because we think I can't afford to? Don't you realize that, that the Lord's issuing a challenge says, test me, test me, give to me and see what happens because you can't outgive God. Test me. In, in, in our lives, as we think, well, if I, if I do this, Lord, it's going to cost me this, it's going to do this. He said, test me. I won't be in your debt. Test me. Act in faith, he's saying. Step out in faith. Test me. I'll provide. And it's often as we act in faith, as we make that di difficult commitment, the Lord's saying, test me. See how I'll provide for you. So what about us? What's our mountain, if you like? What do we have to offer up to the Lord that we're holding back on for us to be able to enjoy it? We don't have to kill, do we? But we have to put sins to death. We, we, we do have to make sacrifices. What, what has the potential, even what good thing has the potential to take over our lives? Where do we need to say... Lord, I'm putting you before this. Because the best way to ruin something is to put it before God. And the best way to enjoy something is to put it second to God. What are we functionally putting before Jesus that we need to give over to him? Is it our security? Is it, is it our work? Is it our hobbies? Is it our kids? Is it our husband? Is it our wife? Is it a relationship that needs to stop? Is it an obsession with what people think of you? Lord says, put me first and watch me provide for you. Third thing is this, we, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this. How do we know that God provides for us? It's all well and good hearing this story, but it's nearly 4,000 years old. How do we know that God still provides for us? How do we know? Yeah, all, all right, Lord. We have this dramatic story, Abraham's up the mountain, he's going to kill his son and, and you provide for him, I get that. What does that mean for me at work on Tuesday with this situation I'm facing? How do we know that, that you provide for us, Lord? How do we know that on the mountain of God it will be provided? Well, hopefully you know where we're going now, don't you? Because 2,000 years later, on the exact same mountain range, God called his son, his only son, his son whom he loved. And he carried wood up the same mountain. But this time there were no ram, there were no last minute reprieve. This time God allowed him to go through with it. And the perfect son was sacrificed in our place 
as our substitute so that we can have forgiveness of our sins and righteousness with God. And in Galatians, Paul says, and it happened just at the right time. And Peter says, we weren't redeemed with corruptible things like gold or silver. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish and spot. He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but manifest in these last times here. It was, it was seen to before the world, but it was revealed at the right time. Before the world were created or you and me existed, God had seen to it that Jesus would be the substitute for our sin. He saw to it before the world were made, but then it was revealed at the right time. Stunning, isn't it? In Romans 8, Paul uses the exact word order that's used to describe Isaac, to describe Jesus, the only son who God loved. See, the Lord stopped short of allowing Abraham to kill his son, but he then doesn't hold back with his own son. And that's why we know that he'll provide for us. Ultimately, this is why we know that God will provide for us in our crisis. Paul says in Romans 8, doesn't he? If God didn't spare his own son for us, how will he not freely give us all things? If, if, he's, if he's given his son, he's, he's not going to lose us on the way home. If he's given his son, he's not going to leave us. If he's provided his son, he's not going to say, well, I've already provided my son, I'm not providing anything else. And so Paul goes on in Romans 8 that we, we can face anything now, even if we can't see it, because we know God's seen to it in Jesus. And so the lesson from Genesis 22, of course it's teaching us about Jesus as God's ultimate provision for us. But the point is this, we, we put God first, we give to him, we serve him, we trust him, we test him in that way. And as we do that, we'll experience his provision now and in eternity. And we need the Holy Spirit to apply that to our hearts, don't we? Because, and I'll say things similar to this regular, I could stand here now and say, I believe what I've just preached absolutely, that God has seen to everything and he's going to provide for everything except my circumstances at the moment. I can see how he's seen through him in the past, but my circumstance that I'm in now, oh no, that's, that's out of his control. And so we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will apply this to our hearts, don't we? Let's, let's do that now. Father, we thank you that you are the God who provides. We thank you that you provide our daily needs. We thank you that you've seen to, seen to it before we get there. We thank you most of all that you've provided Jesus, the, the substitute that that ram pointed to. We thank you for his perfect obedience. We thank you that he always put you first. We thank you that you've given us all that we need to be forgiven and to live. Lord, make that real to us tonight as we maybe go home to different situations and get up for work tomorrow for different situations or maybe in weeks to come have difficult situations. Help us to see that as we put you first, that you've already seen to it. We need your help to do this, Lord, because in and of ourselves we'll panic and be anxious again tomorrow. Help us to put you first. And Lord, help us to see as you see. We ask this in your name. Amen. We're going to sing, Great is thy faithfulness. And then after that, John's going to lead us as we share communion.
As we um, prepare our hearts to come around the Lord's table, I think it'd be good uh, to spend a few moments in, in quiet prayer and reflection. Maybe uh, some of the things that we've, we've thought about tonight as we looked at Genesis 22, uh, you want to ponder in your own hearts, you want to reflect upon uh, as you prepare to come around the table. Uh, maybe uh, there are some things you need to bring before God tonight uh, from some of the things we've heard today. Uh, but let's use this time now. We'll just spend a minute or so uh, just using this time to come before God, to prepare our hearts, uh, to gather around his table uh, tonight. As we come to the table tonight, I want to read a short section from Luke 23. Luke 23, familiar passage, I'm sure, as Jesus and Barabbas are standing there before the crowd and before Pilate. We read these words in Luke 23. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders and the people. And said to them, you have brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he has sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Uh, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. The guilty one goes free. The innocent one is put on the cross. It is really, as we think about it, and we say it so often, it is amazing. In many ways, I suppose we would say it's outrageous, isn't it? That the guilty one gets to go free. And Jesus, the innocent one, is sentenced to death. I'm always struck by that song that we sometimes sing. What kind of love is this? And it reminds us that he who had done no wrong was crucified for me. I am the guilty one, yet somehow I go free. As we come to the table tonight, I hope that reminds us that we don't come to the table because we deserve it. We don't come to the table because we've done anything worthy of, of coming. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve to go free. 
And yet somehow, as we've thought already tonight, Jesus went to the cross so that we, the guilty ones, we, the undeserving ones, go free. And so as we drink this cup and eat this bread, they're symbols. There's nothing magical about what we're going to do. The bread is bread. The juice is juice. But it reminds us of that amazing grace that God in Christ has poured out on us. Here at Holbrook's, the table is open to all those who know and love Jesus as their saviour. And so I invite, if you're here tonight and you know Jesus, you, you live your life for him, you've surrendered everything to him, I invite you to, to take and eat and drink with us as we celebrate and we remember what God has done in Christ. But if you don't know that, if, if Jesus isn't your saviour, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, then as the elements come round, just let them pass by. Don't feel embarrassed by it, but maybe come and talk to somebody afterwards about how you can know Jesus for yourself. In a moment, we're going to distribute uh, and share this bread and wine together. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to sing together. We'll stay in our seats. We'll sing it quietly in our hearts as we once again prepare our hearts. We're going to sing just the first three verses of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross uh, that might cause us to look to the cross and to see something afresh in our hearts tonight of that amazing, outrageous, undeserved grace that God in Christ has poured out into our lives. So let's just remain seated quietly, prayerfully, singing these words to ourselves prayerfully. Uh, first three verses of When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. hear the familiar words from 1 Corinthians as Paul writes to the church there. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
in a moment, we're going to, um, Josh and Steve are going to um, come round and serve you in your seats. Um, if you allow them to serve you and, and don't um, pass the plates along and, uh, and just take from the, from the plate and from the uh, cup as it comes round, uh, the bread is still individually wrapped, so as you receive it, hold on to it, but you might want to open up uh, the wrapper so that you're ready uh, to take and eat as we uh, come to that point of the service. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to ask Josh if you'd just come up and, and give thanks for the bread, um, and then we'll, we'll serve everyone in our seats. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing full well that we are guilty, that, Lord, we are or we have fallen so far short of your glory. We have missed the mark repeatedly, and we've seen this demonstrated through your word over the last few weeks in studying the life of Abraham. Lord, these great men of faith and yet such great failures. Yet, Lord, you are in the business of making the guilty innocent and making the ugly beautiful. And we think of when your body was broken upon that cross, that cruel instrument of torture. Yet, Lord, today we look at it as a, a glorious symbol a beautiful symbol of your mercy and of your grace. You've taken that which was ugly and you've transformed it to be a symbol of hope. And Lord, it is upon what your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did on that cross, suffering his broken body, that we this evening can stand here innocent, righteous, beautiful in your sight. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we honour you, and we remember what your Son did for us on that cross. Amen. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me.
Heavenly Father, we come to you in our Saviour's name and we give you thanks for your blood that was shed for us. Lord, we know that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins and your blood has cleansed us from every spot in your sight. Lord, as we've heard, we are righteous in your sight because our sins have been covered and your blood has purged away our sins. Our Heavenly Father, we heard this morning that our thoughts are known by you, and yet your word says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Lord, we stand before you, and we do not and cannot enter into what it meant for you to give up your son at Calvary, to lay upon him the iniquity and the punishment of us all, for him in his body to bear the wounds that bled for our sin. Lord, we talk about Calvary, and yet, Lord, we have no idea what it was that day when you suffered the torment, the agony for us. And as one hymn writer said, help me to understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Lord, we only know in part. And Lord, we uh, cannot be appreciative enough of what you have done. And yet, Lord, we know that you are the only Saviour. And your blood has made us free and cleansed us. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you did at Calvary, for your shed blood. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, accept our thanks. Amen. As you uh, receive the cup tonight, um, please take hold of it and keep hold of it until everyone is served. And then we'll drink together as an expression of the one sacrifice that was given uh, for us all.
Jesus said, this is my blood that was shed for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Why don't we stand and sing out that last verse of that song we began with and the one I've just quoted as a response to all that we've considered and remembered uh, tonight. Let's stand with the musicians. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you and we give you all the praise for your amazing, outrageous, undeserved grace. May we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus tonight. May we ever be thankful to you for all that you have done for us. That we, the guilty ones, go free because Jesus has paid it all. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen.